Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast celebrating chiclet and the so-called guilty pleasures you're sort of done feeling guilty about. My name is Caroline Donahue, and when I released my first novel this year, I found myself being asked the same two questions over and over again. One, did I think of my novel as chiclet? And two, was I offended if it were called that? Which is weird because all the best women I know are also devoted fans of chiclet and this podcast is dedicated to examining what's good, great and occasionally questionable about the genre. Today I'm joined by journalist, author and film critic Helen O'Hara to talk about what might be the most questionable book and definitely our most controversial author in our first season. (laughs) We're talking about Louise Mensch's 1995 debut, Career Girls. (laughs) Hi, yeah. Helen. Hi. I stand by it. It's an interesting example of the genre, I reckon. Written when she was Louise Bagshaw. And yes. for my money, she was a lot better as a writer then because there was much more sex in her books than right? when she reinvented herself. Keep the Bagshaw because Mensch, yeah. um, decidedly not a Mensch. No, <laughs> no. Not in terms of the dirty bits, for sure. No. Yeah. So um, what, what brought you to this book and why did you choose it today? I genuinely don't remember what what exactly started it. I remember it basically it was going around in first year at uni. It must have been fairly freshly published at that point. It wasn't 95, but it wasn't that long after. Am I right in thinking that you were in Oxford as well? I was, yeah. So okay. that was another thing because the, the book is partly set in, at Oxford University. So I think that was probably part of the reason that somebody picked it up, mm-hmm. maybe thinking this would be an instructive manual in some way for our <laughs> university careers. Uh, it is not. But it was interesting in that sense. So it was basically being passed around like a, like a dirty book was in so school, weird that you know? like people in at university age were still doing that. I thought that was a thing that you did in secondary school. Well, I mean, you have to remember that it, it's, it's Oxford, so we're all a bit backwards. <laughs> we're all we're all a bit backwards. It was not it was not the most you know shagadelic of universities, let's say. Well, if you read Career Girls, I think you think <laughs> very differently. Yes. Um, so I'm going to give a quick sort of summary yes, of of the novel before we get properly into it. So. We start with Rowena Gordon, who is a well-bred child of the British elite. She's also fantastically attractive and a kind of an ice blonde, you know, very slim, elegant, crystal lady sort of way. Um, So she meets Topaz Rossi, an Italian-American scholarship kid at Oxford University. And um, these two meet there and because they're both... You know, so ruthless, so beautiful, so driven by their ambition, they immediately become best friends. And that friendship is torn apart very dramatically when Rowena Rowena betrays the friendship by sleeping with Topaz's boyfriend, which turns into a lifelong grudge and rivalry. Um, And sort of spurned on by that mutual hatred, they both go to the top of their chosen industries. Rowena is in music and uh, Topaz is in publishing. And uh, they sort of launch these missiles ac- across each other throughout their long careers mm-hmm. and disrupting the entire media industry at the same time. Yeah. And it is one of the most compelling reads <laughs> I have ever read. Like This is like, this is bluer than blue. Like, like every 10 pages, there is a sex scene. And it's yeah. sometimes like about half the time, an incredibly disturbing sex scene. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's like constant references to what people are wearing and how curves are being poured into people's outfits <laughs> and, and how like people's erections are bursting against their jeans. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of that. The poor, the poor men must be suffering. There is a lot chasing. of that. There's a lot of like, stalemate trashy things mm-hmm. but ultimately the story is 
flipping good, isn't it? it? The story is really solid, yeah. And I think like it, it is part of that kind. Of, it's kind of the Judith Krantz tradition of chiclet mm-hmm. in the in the sense of like it's all about excess and it's all about you know name dropping brands and talking about how rich everybody is and talking about how glamorous their lives are, um, which is just kind of ridiculous fun. I, I mean, a lot of it doesn't make any sense really, and it especially doesn't make sense. 20 years later when people are getting rich in publishing like that's not a thing nowadays right but it you feels know. like quite plausible because this is very much a 90s book yes like um, so like magazines have endless money the music industry has endless money and yeah. now if you've ever worked in either of those industries <laughs> you know that like you that know it's bare light bulbs and ham sandwiches that are just sweating <laughs> under <laughs> That is under rock stars. That is 100% true. And even like the, the Oxford stuff at the beginning. Okay, so, you know, she was a bit older than me. She's mm-hmm. She's gone through a bit before I did. But like so little of that is familiar to me. Like Churwell, the paper that Rossi writes for when she's at Oxford, that exists. That's a thing. Oh, does it? Uh, the Oxford Union exists. That's a thing that, you know, Rowena runs for president of the Oxford Union. Um, and I get that there's a part of Oxford that I didn't really do because I wasn't a rich kid and there was a rich stratum mm-hmm. on top that I didn't have any truck with because why would I want to be friends with those people? But even even allowing for that, so much of the rest just doesn't make any sense. Like Rowena's meant to be at Christchurch, which is the same college as this boyfriend of Topaz's that she she cheats on him with. But it says she, you know, she was going through the gate lodge four times a week to see him. I'm like, she was never going there otherwise. <laughs> like, you live your entire life in your college. You're never there apart yeah. from the gate lodge. Like, this makes no sense. It also has a weird, like, you would swear, because it's, you know, the, the, the Oxford bit, they're set in the late 80s. Yeah, I think um, so. And you would swear they're talking about the 1930s, the way yeah. that Mensch sort of creates this world. Because, like, they're going to these balls where they're wearing, like, um, Rowena is at one point wearing a Regency period gown. Yeah, somebody wears a crinoline <laughs> dress. Yeah, it's like, like not that you saw one person. It's like, oh, she saw swathes of crinoline yeah. sweeping through the halls. It's like, I mean, the Oxford, you know, it is weird. There are these black tie galas, like, a lot more than a normal university would have them. Boys buy tuxedos when they go up and they wear them all three years. Like that's a thing, mm-hmm. um, but it's not crinoline. It's like give us, come on, yeah. just cut us a little bit of a break, really. There's one very interesting thing that I think um, probably I've, I've never been to an Ivy League. Uh, Ivy League. I've never been to a fancy school, right? <laughs> um, so I don't know how true this is. But one thing that felt like it might ring true mm. in those Oxford days, which are about the first quarter of the book, yeah. maybe. Um, so um, Topaz is this sort of gutsy. Italian American mm. scholarship kid who falls in with the elite crowd or sure. the children of the elite. Yeah. And Rowena, who is, you know, a member of the elite herself, kind of goes through the first few pages of the book being like, I, you know, I'm completely rejecting the snobbery of this class that I come from. It completely doesn't interest me. I love my gutsy Italian American friend. But mm. then Rowena is very much like when she sees her friend going out with one of these people. Yeah. Like, Having something she decides she wants. Yes. Going out yeah. with the, the guy who's a rower and he's like beautiful and blonde and whatever. Um, she decides like, no, how dare you march into my class and take it? So this is very interesting hypocrisy and double standard yeah. from the beginning. It's very rooted in class, which does feel like it could be part of the Oxford experience. Yeah, and just the general life experience. I think that's part of, you know, I think that's part of, you know, racism, for example. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're all for those people doing well. And then suddenly when they do well, people are a bit like, oh, well, hang on a minute. You know, yeah. are they taking our opportunities? Whatever. I think there's an element of that just in human nature, probably. But it is probably part of a, an Oxford thing. I, I Weirdly, my experience of the uni, I'm sorry to bang on about this, but my experience of the uni was it was the least... 
class conscious place I've been in some ways in the sense that um, I was aware of how smart most people were and I was aware of how hard most people worked and I wasn't aware of how much money they had. Now, I would say that the negative reason for that is that we were all degrees of middle class. Mm. Most people that I knew were degrees of middle class, either you know rich middle class, poorer middle class, whatever. Um, and that's why we didn't really talk about it. And I think that was probably not the experience for like a working class kid coming up to Oxford. I think they probably were more aware of it and did have to be you know, more conscious or whatever else at, th- at that time. But for me, like I wasn't, there were, there were people that I found out literally in my final year had gone to like super fancy public schools and mm. just never made a deal of it. They weren't those people or they didn't act like those people. Um, and equally, there were people who went to bog standard comprehensives who came up to Oxford and started acting like they were the sons of royalty. Like, yeah. it's, it, it is a weird place, but it's not, my experience wasn't as class ridden as this one, basically. Uh, and again, that might be me being weird and not Louise Met- I'm actually, Bagshaw being wrong. I'm actually really interested in your perspective here, um, in kind of our shared perspective, because yeah. um, both of us are Irish. Yeah. And um, I don't think there's as much, um, I don't know what the word for it, not as much focus on class in Ireland, because class does exist, but yeah. it's um, not as rigid as it is here. And I, thought, yeah. I when I first moved here, I was really bad at spotting what the tellers were for what an incredibly posh mm-hmm. or privileged person was. Because I, I thought, that, okay, someone who's got a long, fancy, double-barreled name and um, plays rugby or sales, that's a fancy <laughs> person. But actually everyone around me who I was making friends with was like, oh no, well, he's from this obscure part of the country, you know he's got money. You know, it's like, yeah. there's a lot more codifiers in, yeah. you know, that I didn't yeah. know about. That's probably true. It, there was stuff that I just didn't pick up on at first because I didn't know enough to know what it meant. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, there's an element of that. But, um, I mean, I did become gradually aware like you know if somebody had like in those days if somebody had a big flat screen tv in their room yeah you're like whoa you've got <laughs> <That's money."> wealth <laughs> uh, or actually certainly my first year if somebody had a laptop you're like whoa you're a bit fancy aren't you yeah because the rest of us went to the computer room and just used the, the college computers mm-hmm. because it's i am old and this was old and oh, no, that kids. was like i mean i'm i went to uni in 2008 and i was using the computer okay that makes me know, feel better so. okay good. but um but genuinely like you you sort of gradually picked up on some clues that okay this person has yeah. more money than i do but it's like that difference between money and class mm. and that is in the novel a lot, a lot. because um because you know rowena is this elite or whatever and and topaz despite the fact they get to similar places in their career, mm. they both become absolute titans of their industry. Yeah. But there's always this sense that Topaz is a grasping, grimy little journalist who's yeah. always... Um, essentially what Topaz does throughout the novel is she digs up dirt on Rowena or the musical acts that are around Rowena and she puts that dirt in the papers mm-hmm. and then she slowly dismantles Rowena's career by doing this. Yeah. As, a, as a pure act of revenge. And she also ruins many people's lives in the process. <laughs> but then so does Rowena. So yeah. one, one of one of uh, Topaz's moves is to have one of her magazines go after this this musical act that, that Rowena's supporting. What are they and, called? Uh, Atomic uh, Mass. Atomic Mass, which isn't a bad band name, actually. No, That's it's a very solid. believable band yeah. name. Um, so uh, she, so uh, Topaz goes after Atomic Mass. And Rowena and her friends, particularly Michael Krebs, who I think we'll be talking about more later, yes. retaliate by essentially... Uh, this guy, Michael Krebs, is a very important music producer. He's he's known throughout the, and loved throughout the whole industry. So he basically calls up all his friends and gets them to stop advertising in this particular magazine mm-hmm. and essentially shuts down the magazine. Yeah. 
And then later on in the novel, the um, the magazine is shut down and Completely. no one even mentioned it. And, and as a journalist, you're thinking, oh, well, hundreds of people just lost their jobs. There, there's there's a line about that where she says that you know, Topaz tried to reassign everybody within American. But that's it. Yeah. That yeah. Rowena just killed a magazine yeah. for Topaz. Good work, ladies. Great work, ladies. <laughs> but it's so compelling. Mm. I mean, obviously, the plot's very compelling. But what's even more compelling is the parallels with Louise Mensch nay Bagshaw yeah. and the whole figure of who Louise Mensch is mm. which I don't think we can get any further in this podcast without talking about a little yeah it's because when she wrote this I mean this is a very Thatcherite novel in some ways isn't it it's very yeah. much the sort of it's, it feels a lot that's a more perfect 80s way of describing than 90s it. in yes. some ways. It's very much these people pulling them up by their boots, by their own bootstraps. Even Rowena, who comes from class and money and has gone to all the best schools mm-hmm. and all that, she basically is disowned when she goes into music and her family are never mentioned again except negatively. Family is never mentioned. Yeah. Like, the only people that these women have connections with are the older, more powerful men they're sleeping with every 10 pages. That is another issue, yes. And the people they are crushing. Yes. <laughs> like, they don't really have friends. There are some token friends who are there to deliver some new storylines. Basically. But there aren't, there's no real warmth. No one has fun in this novel unless they're being sexually abused by their older boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's not not unfair. The fun is from um, having sex and yeah. crushing people. Crushing. Oh, they do like listening to music or and or journalism. They do. Yes, they so do they have a passion us. for their work. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> but but yeah. So so Mensch herself or Bagshaw as she was, Mensch as she is. Um, well, first of all, let's get into the Mensch thing. So one of the people thanked. Did you notice this in the book? In the thanks for this book, it goes, and finally, my thanks to the most appropriately named man in the music industry, Peter Mensch, for taking me along for the ride. And he actually comes up a couple of times in the story as a character. Mm-hmm. Uh, and basically, each time the, this book goes out of its way to say how great he is and how you shouldn't mess with him because he's really powerful. Right. right. So that's all background. There's a guy called Peter Mensch. He was in the music industry. He was, I think, a promoter um, and manager. And and Louise Bagshaw obviously met him in the course of her research. Years later, she married him. So, but she actually met him because she was president of the Oxford Uni Rock Club. Yes. Saw him on TV, had a crush on him, kept writing letters to him to get him to come talk at, at school mm-hmm. and then just essentially stalked him throughout his career. Essentially, yeah. So yeah. happy ending, I guess, in, in that sense. But it's weird that it parallels the book so much because yeah. Rowena meets this older, very powerful figure in the music industry called um, Michael Krebs and... The least romantic name it's I've ever heard. Terrible name, isn't Krebs. it? Krebs. Krebs with a K. It's not. It's not. Yeah. A the name. naming of characters in this book is a whole other subject. We'll get onto in a minute. But continue. <laughs> so, um, so he's much older than she is, but they perform this very sort of dominant, submissive affair where she's very submissive to him, and he's very, very dominant of her. He refuses to leave his wife. He's yeah. married. He's he's he absolutely won't give up on the affair with her, but absolutely also won't. Mm-hmm. break up his marriage and this basically goes on throughout the whole book until really last minute like literally last page of the book he turns up and says no I've left her let's get you know let's live happily wow. ever after um, but it's it's a little weird isn't it that just the parallels are just a bit weird so that is not the only parallel between uh, Louise Mench's private life and mm. uh, Rowena Gordon mm-hmm. again Rowena for your, your heroine I don't know Rowena the- and Topaz <laughs> <laughs> um, so I really hate the trend of like um, 
you know, a woman writes about an area of the world that she knows about from her personal life, mm. uh, and then everyone thinks it's an autobiography. This is something sure. I got when uh, with Promising Young Women because it's set in the advertising world, and I worked in the advertising world, and yeah, I wrote my first novel based on that because that's the world I know really yeah. well. But then people were asking me, sort of like, oh, so who did you who did you sleep with? Who did you do this? And it was really insulting because I was like, oh, you know, how dare you? Mm. You know that I, of course I can make things up, and I think that happens a lot in discussion of women, female novelists. That's true. That's true. Um, that the idea that women sort of draw on their personal lives and men exclusive invent things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in <laughs> our friend Louise cases... In this case, yeah. The parallels are as such. Rowena went to a private girls' Catholic boarding school, mm-hmm. then went to Christchurch at Oxford, mm-hmm. then became a music PR, a very successful one, I think, and then married a producer. Yeah. All of that could be said about the author. Yes, absolutely yeah. all of it, down to the boarding yeah. school. But I, I mean, we have to cut her some slack, probably. This is her first novel. Yes, um, and she was really young when she really wrote Really She was 22 yeah. when she signed a book for a book deal. Which is really good going, so like well yeah. done in that sense. But um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it sometimes does show, I think there's some bits where she kind of overplays her hand. There's a couple of bits where she maybe hasn't edited... Or somebody else hasn't edited her that that well, you know. There's there's a bit, and I'm trying, I'm still trying to figure out this outfit, right? There's a bit, and I'm probably not going to be able to find it to quote it exactly. But there's a bit where you she, she talks about, you know, Topaz's no Rowena's curled up on a chair mm. with her her breasts do a lot of thrusting, but they're thrusting up against the fabric of her blouse. Yeah, and then literally a line later, she it says she's wearing a blue Bill Blast dress. <laughs> So I'm, out for change. I'm genuinely trying to figure out like how that dress works, that you can still see the thrusting. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Or is thrusting just, does that mean being present or does it mean sort of, you know, poking through almost? Like I'm genuinely <laughs> concerned about the physics here. I want to understand what cuts of dress and blouse yeah. still allows a clear outline to be perceived. It's a difficult one. It's It's a tough one. It's. I mean, pe- people can maybe draw diagrams at home. I don't know. Maybe it's a sort of weird one of those weird dresses that sort of comes up to just under your boobs and then just has straps. It was the nineties. People were doing things with straps and sleeves, the likes of which we haven't seen since. Oh, I still miss the, the sleeves in the nineties. You know, when boys used to wear like a long t-shirt sleeve and then a short t-shirt yeah, sleeve. Yeah, I miss it. curtain on boys. Yeah, yeah. the nineties were great, <laughs> and they were especially great for Louise Mensch. Apparently, um, I want to talk a little bit about. What we think happened there with her, <laughs> because so I, I don't know if everybody knows this, but so everything we just said about Rowena slash Louise, yeah, um, she was kind of um, I think she described herself for a long time as being a uh, socially liberal but fiscally conservative. Yeah, the sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger approach to politics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, and a bit of a Blairite as well. I think mm. in the nineties, and um, then she became a conservative MP. She founded several websites, one of which, by the way, mm, is was- called Heat Street, which is the name of the album that the Atomic Mass Whoa! Produced. I hadn't even put that together before. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> I was doing a lot of simultaneous reading of this book and her Wikipedia page last wow. night, as you can probably tell. <laughs> um, and then, you know, she uh, became a journalist where... I mean, she's been described as conspiracy theorist. She she um, yeah. has a series of kind of um, failed websites. One of which was called Mention. Mention, like so, her own name plus N on the end is yes, it? and that that was meant to replace Twitter and didn't really take off. No, it did. Did it? <laughs> You're not on Mention. Oh no, really? Oh, am I missing out? Oh man. Oh god, I've, I've been trying to add you on Mention all these oh. years. <laughs> 
That's why I keep getting all that spam. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and so yeah, a series of, of websites like that, and then she eventually she um, she's just writing for her own political blog, and she kind of updates it once every few months, and mostly with a kind of a nonsensical anti-Trump story. Mm. And she sort of seems to be almost making things up, and then every now and then she'll sort of hit on something that actually turns out to be true, and she she's been incredibly controversial and also just batty. Like she she once bullied um, Abby Tomlinson, who was the sixteen year old who founded the Miller fandom back in the um, mm-hmm. whatever year that election was. Uh, bullied her off Twitter and like basically wouldn't apologize for screaming at a teenager online. And um, mm. now just, it, 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 it basically, it makes no sense to me how somebody who was once pursuing the noble call of like being a fun, bonk buster romance writer is mm. now just um, just yelling at people, at teenagers online, you know? Yeah, I, I, it's 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 been a bit weird. I mean, I get the, the sort of no apologies kind of, you know, stance. For, like, I feel like that fits with a lot of her characters, not just in this yeah. book, but in, in other ones as well. Um, Tall Poppies is one that springs to mind. That was yes. another classic. Genuinely, it's because it's, it's, it's very strange because her characters, yeah, um, they're all like um, everyone seems to be like, oh, the most brilliant woman in her industry. Mm. All these ca- these women are brilliant and they're smart and they're talented. But like most of the evidence of their brilliance and talent are them walking into rooms yelling at people <laughs> until they get their way and then walking out again, just like them going like, I'm the smartest woman in this industry, Michael Krebs, and you'd be a damn fool if you didn't see that. <laughs> And him going, well, she has a point. I mean, I can argue. Can I? <laughs> it, it is. I mean, there's something very satisfying about that. And I think that is one of the reasons that I do like these books. Right. You know, it's very much, you know, um, she said herself, it's not Cinderella stories. Like this is women going out and doing it for themselves. Mm-hmm. This is very Annie Lennox and Aretha Franklin. Oh, Sisters yes. are doing it for themselves. Uh, not always in a very sisterly way, but they are. Um, and... And that is kind of fun just because it gives the, the the books a bit more to work with. It's not the usual, not, I don't want to say this too denigratingly, but there are, there are a lot of books, there are a lot of romances and, and TV shows and movies where the only thing keeping the couple apart is some completely spurious mm-hmm. uh, misunderstanding that hasn't been cleared up when it should have been and therefore yes. it will all come out and there will be a sense of betrayal and it will be awful. And like you're just waiting for this betrayal and you can get it over with and then you can get back together. The famous and, oh one my being, God. you dated me for a bet? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's always something so super Something contrived. I still say to my boyfriend every morning, by the way. I'm like, it was a bet? You're dating me for a bet? It's been four years. <laughs> we have a dog. <laughs> you got this dog as a bet? <laughs> you were writing an article about me? <laughs> Those are the two big ones. It was Those a bet two, yeah. or you were writing an article about yeah. me. Yeah, that, that's always and, yeah. and the thing was at least in this case the problems tend to be more like God I hate her because she's getting in my way at work mm-hmm. or God I hate him because he's getting in my way at work and yeah. that tends to be what they need to overcome and that's a lot more satisfying in the sense of yeah that's a thing that could happen to a person oh totally so I'm, it, it's you know. so interesting that like so much of the book there's like there's incredible fantasy incredible wealth like mm. and it's very some of it you're like okay this sex scene could never happen in real life <laughs> they're, they're like in a green room at like the biggest rock concert in the world and he's like tying her to the beams on the ceiling why are there beams on the ceiling I don't know all of that is so out there but then actually when you get to the work detail mm. it's very it feels yeah, very solid. well researched it yeah. feels very solid it's com- completely compelling mm. Um, and I bloody loved it. Like, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I just want to give her credit where credit's due because I thought 
all that stuff was yeah. really brilliant. Yeah. She's, uh, you know, so as a music AR, she's going out to scummy clubs and mm-hmm. watching usually rubbish bands. Yeah. Um, for the sort of the tabloid scene, she's, like you say, she's raking muck, basically, to try and make it through. And then she's kind of redesigning magazines. And even some of her ideas for redesigning magazines are quite interesting, They're actually. good ideas, most yeah, of them. Yeah, they're pretty solid. And not all of them have been done in real life very much. So yeah. it's kind of uh, it's kind of interesting what, what Topaz comes up with or what Louise Mensch comes up with uh, to there's, do there's, that stuff. There's a brilliant one where she's like... Um, she Topaz makes the decision that she's not going to put thin models or Kate yeah. Moss, and this is like the era of Kate Moss. Of yeah. her big, I mean, every year is her era. Sure, but um, but she's like um, she's like she's like um, girls don't really care about Kate Moss. Girls care about Nancy Kerrigan. Yeah, and you could replace Nancy Kerrigan with Jennifer Lawrence or whatever. Like they care, like she's constantly having to explain to much older, much more powerful men, like you don't understand these people, like I understand mm. these people, and obviously the magazine editor in rom coms is a is a really hallowed job but I think Topaz is among the most convincing oh yeah she she literally does feel like an actual editor and stuff like in in the same sort of sequence as that she's talking about not having designer clothes in their teen magazine which mm. really shouldn't be very difficult thing to figure out and yet you know yeah. it feels like it's taken a long time for teen magazines to come around with the idea that oh that these kids are going to wear Gap. They're not going to wear Gucci. Yeah. Um, so but there's a great scene where she's literally yelling at these models to get into their Gap. Yeah. Because, <laughs> and they're completely incensed by it. Quite, you know, she's right. I mean, she seems like a good magazine editor. Fair play to her. One of my other favourite scenes of that was like, so um, one of her love interests. Uh, by the way, so she, another thing about Topaz is that mm. um, she meets this man uh, called something Rosen Nathan Nathan Rosen who is her boss at her first magazine um, gets together with him he seems like a lovely man he seems super nice he seems like actually he's the only nice person in the book (laughs) he's just like he really believes in her he really tries to hold off on getting with his employee eventually they fall in love they um, get married she's a bit pissed off Uh, engaged engaged importantly they get engaged she's a bit pissed off that he doesn't want to have sex all of the time (laughs) the way she needs to Um, but there's this lovely scene and it's probably the only domestically um, sweet scene in the Mm. entire book where um, they're just sort of at home and they have a bit of sex in the kitchen table because why not of course Um, they're sort of like having a bit of a joke in bed and she's like I'd really love some coffee ice cream he goes out to get some coffee ice cream and dies (laughs) (laughs) you monster you just laughed at the guy dying he got hit by a car he got hit by a drunk driver do you know what? I was so I was I was rereading this book. Obviously, I read it back in the day, and I was uh, I was coming up to that scene. I, in my memory, he died of a heart attack, and I'll tell you why that was my memory is because the book cannot shut up about how old he is, right? Yeah, and now, he's like thirty eight. At this point, she's like twenty two, and no, no, he's not fifty eight. He's thirty nine. Oh, okay. right. He's thirty nine, and and the book acts like he's about to drop dead at any moment. Like <laughs> I know he keeps talking about how he needs to go to the gym to stay in shape because oh my god, he's you know so old, and he keeps worrying about his thinning hair and worrying about keeping up with his young you know virile girlfriend. Totally. And it's the it's the place really where like um you can tell that twenty two year old wrote this book. Yeah, very, like, thir- very what's much. What's the so. oldest age I can think of? Thirty nine. <laughs> It, it it is hilarious, and um and the age difference. This is a thing with all of the characters. Yes. really. Older Jewish mm. men who yeah. are incredibly powerful. Yeah. Um and kind of mean, <laughs> are catnip yeah. to these characters. Basically, that. I mean, I think the the powerful thing makes sense because I feel like if you're a powerful woman, you want to be with your equal. 
Yeah. I think a lot of the time. And I, I think that's one of the things that creates a lot of problems for women who are powerful and accomplished and everything mm-hmm. else, because men are not taught to find that attractive and to seek that out. Yeah. And women are. Um, and, and I think there's a bit of an imbalance there. In terms of the age thing as well, I think men are taught to want younger women and women are taught to go for older men and it's creepy in this book I genuinely mm. think it's anti-feminist for women to date much older men but that's a whole other thing no I that, that's a that's a very interesting thing because this is something I've talked to you off air about before yeah I don't it's, think things I don't think things socially will change until young women stop dating older men and I yeah. realize that it's unfeminist for me to tell young women what, what to, to do. do so I can't do that mm-hmm. but I want them to want to not do that and I can't make yeah. them not want that. But like, it's it's a problem. But I genuinely, like socially, I feel like it, it creates a huge imbalance of power in the dating game, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it's, anyway. No, I, th- I think there is something to that. And it's definitely something that is reflected a lot in this book because mm. there's a lot of tussle and push and pull of the concept of sleeping your way to the top, mm. which both characters, I think, are accused of. Yeah. Because both characters are very good at their jobs and um, yep. men takes a lot of care to detail that of like how good these women are and how respected they are, how feared they are, mm-hmm. how good their instincts are. But then there are always moments with both of them where they're essentially in a bit of trouble, but the man they're shagging kind of gets them out of it. Yeah. Rowena but- and Michael Krebs being... A good the example, one, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I think uh, in in all of the in, in in all of those kind of situations, there is an element of him being even if it's before they've gotten together. There's an element of his attraction to her yeah. playing a role in his decision to help. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it is a it's a bit murky in that sense. It's very very interesting in terms of how it reflects on the different kinds of feminisms that have mm. grown, evolved, and been discarded over the years. Because mm-hmm. I feel like if you compare. I feel like that, that that feminism has grown out of that 1970s tradition of feminism where it's like, we have to be realistic about what men want from us and how we can use that against them. Mm-hmm. That's what that's the worldview yeah. of this book. Like, OK, his his sort of list of attributes and skills are the fact that he's talented and powerful and he has lots of money. My thing is that I'm very attractive and I'm very smart. Yeah. And that's how I'm going to. And that's a very triumphed in this in this book whereas I feel now the kind of feminism that we tend to preach Mm -hmm. is about no we're going to all try and level each other out we're we're not animals anymore we're not going to have sexual predatory relationships in order to bolster our work relationships you know what I mean yeah so and there's there's, there's a lot of people who argue that like that sort of 70s approach which was more about how the way things are versus the 2018 approach was very like let's change the way things are yeah and that that was more practical. And in some ways that might be true, but it's only going to get you so far because if yeah. you're not challenging the system, then you can only proceed so far. I mean, Topaz is a really good example of the kind of lean-in feminism. I mean, there's mm. a... Okay, so this is a spoiler if you haven't got there yet, but like she's going to get pregnant. So she's going to have like a tiny maternity leave because mm-hmm. she wants to get back to work yeah. and doesn't want to miss any time. Uh, and that's entirely the decision taken by many powerful women in her position. That is absolutely, especially in America, of course, where she is at that point in her career. Um, so it makes sense. I'm not saying it's not realistic. It's 100% mm-hmm. realistic. It's also really freaking depressing because it shouldn't, you shouldn't have to rush back to work after having twins. Spoiler, um, oh, twins, twins, yeah. um, to keep your job and to keep with you know to get back without losing position. Mm. And and so many women I know have experienced some degree of 
you know, prejudice or whatever, yeah. going back to work after having kids. And it's still such an issue. And it shouldn't be down to mm. every woman rushing back after six weeks or three months or whatever. Mm just so she doesn't get penalised for it. You know, so that it's that kind of difference of feminism yeah. again. On one hand, you can show you're as tough as the men by going back to work almost immediately. On the other hand, you shouldn't have to be that. Mm. The, the species needs to continue and that should be valued. While we're on the sort of subject of feminism and how it's treated on this, because both characters um, are feminists. Yes. They, they say they are. They're very, they're very devout in yeah. saying that they are. And, and other people accuse them of it. Regularly, yeah, and they proudly lean into that. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, th- and that's some of the best moments in the book. Yeah. It's the most rousing. They're like, yeah, like, well, fuck them. You are a feminist, and mm-hmm. there's like arguments about whether who's going to take whose last name and all that kind of stuff. And it's it's actually really great. Yeah. Um, but it's very much a feminism. It it it, it is white feminism incorporated, yeah. in terms of it's feminism that cares about feminism to the extent that as long as I climb the ladder and get to the top. That's all that That's really all that matters. matters. Yeah, and it's also that it's the, not sisterly. You it's know? not sisterly, and it is that very individualistic uh, approach of um, I got to the top, so anyone can. Um, yeah, and yeah. and there is no discussion of anyone in the books who might not be as gifted as Topaz or Rowena mm-hmm. and who may not have had the opportunities that they've had. So, uh, yeah, it, it feels like, oh, look at all these wonderful people who have worked their way to the top. There's nothing to stop anyone doing that. And the, it's like, no, that does not prove anything. There's loads of things yeah. to stop people doing that. So yeah, it, that's why I say it's a very Thatcherite book in that sense. It doesn't really acknowledge the fact that there might be other people who cannot do what these two characters do. Yeah. The um, meritocracy is definitely a thing that is... Well, there's literally a meritocrat's ball yes. in this where the greatest are invited. Um, the good, they say, can take care of themselves, which is a good line in the book. Um, <laughs> but um, but all the people who have achieved most mm-hmm. are invited to this particular ball. And of course, both our heroines keep meeting there to oh, throw barbs at each other. Oh. So I don't think we can get much further in this. Mm-hmm. without talking about the sex in the book because we've sort of like well obviously I mean every 10 pages there's a sex scene pretty much you're yeah. never I mean sometimes like at first you're like oh god another sex scene whatever but after a while you're like you get used to them as being like breaking up the yeah. action you're like, where, you're like Louise where, where's, where's the sex scene come on it's yeah. been 12 pages it's like about that time um, and so I don't want to be very my dad wrote a porno about this sure. because sex writing is hard and people like it right and I think it's silly to make fun of sex writing um, I think it's quite a low blow god there's so many so many <laughs> double entendres just in that sentence I mean I alone. was trying to control myself but I want to give you an idea or the listeners an idea what the dynamic of these sex scenes are uh, Michael Cribbs and Rowena are at this very fancy party that you mentioned earlier on mm-hmm. and um, they it's just been revealed by the host that all the guests are being taken to the Florida Keys and everybody's yeah. leaving to go get the helicopter or whatever and Rowena is instructed by her boss Michael Krebs that he will not, she will not be going to Florida she will instead be having sex with him yeah which um, is upsetting actually like <laughs> Florida sounded go awesome to Florida that's Rowena. an amazing party everyone's going on a golf string come on <laughs> Michael okay so I know what happens now said Michael in her ear so you won't have to wait to see Everyone's going up to the roof garden and gets into a fleet of helicopters which ferry them to Alex Martin's private airstrip and then two Gulfstream 4 jets take everybody out and back for six hours of dancing in the Florida Keys. You're kidding, breathed Rowena. Krebs made an impatient movement with his hand. No, I'm not kidding, but I want to fuck you so you're not going. 
He took another look at her in that cream and rose dress, the ruby sparkling around her long neck as she moved. She reverted to type. They all did, these little rich girls playing around in business. She was a class piece, a European lady, the kind that he dreamt about in college but would have stammered in front of if he'd actually had to speak for her. Michael Krebs, twice Rowena Gordon's age, her mentor in business, her tutor in sex. He splayed his fingers over her ribcage, feeling her slight involuntary squirm. He would have her like this, exactly like this. He wouldn't let her change a thing. He wanted to see this English lady in her fine clothes, down on her knees, with her mouth around his cock, with her warm, soft lips and eager tongue working him so that he could come in her mouth. That would be first. Then a little later, before he was hard again, he'd make her take his limp prick in between her lips and hands and and work them <laughs> and work them back up to an erection so he could put her on her hands and knees on a hotel bed shove up that elegant chiffon and screw her from behind, just fuck all that British reserve right out of her. She'd have to please him like that. She'd have to earn her sex. <laughs> that was very difficult for me, everyone. <laughs> you did it so well. Um, so that's very, mu- that's very much the what sex is in, in the book. Mm. People have it joyously, rarely. It's always, it's always, qu- always about domination and the exchange of power. And... Yeah. Which... So basically, reading this as a sort of, what, 18-year-old or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, what was quite attractive about the sex scenes, if you like, was the fact that um, the women don't have to take too much in the way of initiative. It's quite easy in the sense of you don't have to start anything. Like, I feel Mm. like, you know, you don't have to kind of worry. They've got it covered. Like, they're going to be competent. They know what you want. You don't have to think about it. That's so interesting. And that was kind of the sort of... Because if you're not quite sure what you're doing, the idea of quite a dominant lover is a good one. Because you're like, well, I don't have... It doesn't matter that I don't know what I'm doing because he knows what he wants and it'll work for both of us. That is such an excellent point because Rowena, her sort of... She's unbelievably turned on by all this. She like is addicted to this man and, and to this sort of sex that they have. And for most of it... It's just him saying things to her and and then having sex with her and her just kind of like, oh, God, oh, yeah. Jesus, oh, my God. Um, like, there's no, there's actually no pressure for her to be as filthy right back. She just has to sort of... Be like, there. And, like, let it yeah. in. Yeah. yeah, literally, just, like, her presence is all that's really required of her. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, it just seems like... Um, I don't want to say sex for beginners, but it kind of is a little bit. It's kind of just quite low pressure for them like she and she and topaz are portrayed i mean they're talked about the, the book slavers over them oh yeah it's so very much. male gazy it's very it's re- like yeah they can't walk into a meeting without like and she looked amazing as always like, her perfect tits jiggling in her top you know exactly. so much of that like every man that either of these women meet is a, is immediately mm-hmm. insane for them i don't think there's a gay character in the book is there i mean almost none if there's if a so. brief mention of one. Oh, yeah. there's a stylist who's yes yeah okay yeah. but basically everybody else and all of them are obsessed with these women and it's just quite a nice fantasy to think that all I just need to do is stand here and they're going to be like, wow, she is amazing. <laughs> it's so it's just... weird. You know how like when you read a lot of a book at once and then you kind of, <laughs> the narration is in your head. Mm-hmm. Like I was walking around my house yesterday in like leggings and a t-shirt being like, her curves were poured into her gap <laughs> leggings, her Levi's t-shirt without a stain. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've seen you in leggings, you know, absolutely poured in. Thank poured you. In. <laughs> I feel poured in. <laughs> 
Do you think there's an argument for like the the, the sex these women have is so um, sort of angry and furious and insatiable? Mm. Like that is something mm. that comes up about both of them all the time. Is that they they literally can't have enough? Yeah, and um, there is no too much for them. There's no UTIs in this book. Oh god, <laughs> nobody gets cystitis from being banged too hard. Um, they do you think there's a subtext that they just want to bang each other? Because <laughs> I think they just are fucking their way back to themselves, back to each other. Wow. Yeah. You were blowing this thing wide open, maybe. Um, I mean, yeah, you can. I think you can read it that way. They're certainly obsessed with each other, aren't they? Yeah. And there is the closeness when they're together. Mm. And the men talk about them braiding each other's hair. Is that euphemistic? Oh. Who knows? But neither of them ever wears comfortable shoes. So I guess that's <laughs> out. So I, I'm, I'm really confused. The signals are mixed. Um, hmm. Hmm. I think there is a massive sapphic <laughs> subtext in here. That these women would be happier, but probably less like successful if they just owned a B and B together in New England. I mean, I don't know what's our measure of success. Surely an Engl- a New <laughs> yeah, England B and B. That is the perfect measure of success. Um, so that's my theory. Wow. Final question. Mm. I couldn't let you go without asking you this question. Um, can you cast this movie for me? Oh God. Um, oh, that's interesting. Uh, fiery redhead. You might almost want a. Julia Roberts type, right? Yeah, a kind of Erin Brockovich era. Yeah. for Topaz. Exactly, for Topaz, yeah. Um, or I was thinking uh, my cousin Vinny era Marissa Tomei. Cool. Yeah, we'll yeah. go for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, for Rowena, I mean, an icy blonde should not be difficult. There's less of them around these days, I feel. I suppose. Uh, Rosamund Pike, Naomi Watts, mm, one yeah. of those kind of people. Who's like the, like the 22, 23-year-old version of that yeah because you kind of need to be younger yeah that's a good point the Marissa Tomei I thought we were time travelling no we are time okay, travelling yeah we, we want like a like a like a Michelle Pfeiffer or Sharon Stone oh Michelle British. Pfeiffer would be great at it but her British accent maybe I'm not sure no I'm not sure about her accent mm. um, Michael Krebs Michael Krebs I'll tell you who I'd go for if yeah. you want to make him attractive which you do mm-hmm. uh, what I'd almost be attempted to do would be Sam Elliott's Circa Roadhouse now if you Ooh. if you do a Google image search for Sam Elliott Circa Roadhouse that that's a that's a sexy older man oh yeah no, no he's I, even then I think he was probably a bit too old for Krebs mm-hmm. but you'd make an exception I wouldn't say no to Sam Elliott today though well no who would yeah I mean I saw him in A Star Is Born mm-hmm. and I had no idea what he was saying but I'd still I'd still no, get up on that with thing. that voice I mean yeah <laughs> So that would be a good, you know, that voice would instantly be a really good way of communicating the fact that Michael Krebs is super, super, super yeah. duper hot. Mm-hmm. So that would work. Is there anybody else? I feel like all the other characters just fall by the wayside. Um, I mean, Joe Goldstein who, and Topaz's other love interest. After, after, yes, after sorry, Nathan. We, we yeah. never mentioned that we after Nathan dies, him. she immediately gets off with his um, protege. Protege, yeah. And then they get married. And Who's it's... still more than 10 years older than her, just in yes. case you were worried. Um, yeah, he, uh, I mean, literally any bland, extremely handsome actor would mm-hmm. be fine. I feel like Nathan, um, that guy from New Girl. Oh, yeah, Jake yeah. Johnson. Yes, Jake yeah, Johnson. Just great. kind of a nice schlubby guy. You know, <laughs> a nice schlub. Yeah, okay, I can go with that. Yeah. I think, th- the weird thing is, is that like, obviously there are lots of characters that come in and out, but mm. all you really care about is the, those three, right? Yeah, Rowena, much. Topaz and Michael Krebs. <laughs> <laughs> the worst man alive. He's not He's not in the top ten best, is he? Yeah, yeah he's he's pretty... He's pretty disappointing. 
So um, would you recommend people read Career Girls? I mean, recommend is such a strong word. I, I had a, <laughs> I had a really good, I had a really good fun with it. It's, it's, you know, as you say, it races along nicely. Yeah. You keep reading it. It's very, very. It's four hundred and fifty pages long, and it races. Yeah, I, you know? yeah, it's four hundred and fifty pages long, and I can certainly read it in well under a day. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's very, very simple that way. Um, I would say the which of the other ones I liked the first Tall Poppies and the movie. I oh, Tall Poppies is the movie. Sorry, no. There's also a book called the movie. I see. So confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but no. And then she got basically after she sort of got into politics and had children and got married. Uh, she basically cut all the sex scenes out of her book. So anything written oh. after about 2000 is completely sexist. Still can be a good read. Right. But, but do and be also aware. if you're politically unsure of Louise Mensch, you can just go for the Bagshaw years. Is that a good? I would absolutely do okay. that. Yeah. Cool. Well, Helena, thank you so much for being on Fundamental Garbage. You have been fantastic. <laughs> thank you. Is there anything you want to plug? Uh, nah, you know, I'm just out there. I'm on social I'm, media. Social media. I'm on Twitter, Helen L. O'Hara, mm-hmm. um, and I plug things there. So, But okay. I also do other things like retail jokes, so it's all good. Okay, and you also do the Empire podcast. I also do the Empire in, podcast. Good, so, good delta. Yeah, so if you're, if you're into film and don't mind idiots harping on nonsensically about it then mm-hmm. we're right there now get those curves out of here <laughs> poured into that lumberjack shirt <laughs> I mean it's not it's not very career girls is it I'm sorry come on I give sh- us a spin I should have I should have worn my Prada my Gucci but no thanks Adam this has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue you can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast produced by Hannah Varrell. <laughs>